Welcome to the Nerd Party. They can travel anywhere in time and space. Off we go into time and space. So all of time and all of space. Sitting out there. Welcome to time and space. One married couple's adventure through the Doctor Who universe. I'm Jessica Nunn. And I'm her transatlantic traveling companion. Philip Gilfus. This is our first day back in the United States after visiting England for a week. Whilst we did spend a majority of our time visiting friends, seeing shows, and stopping by many pubs, we also saw many Doctor Who sites. Today, we'll be talking about our Doctor Who encounters in the UK, including some interviews with British Whovians. One of the things we did was when we uh, were meeting with friends, especially I think the, the first night we stayed in Guildford, uh, we met a lot of your friends that you, you had. Have, darling, not had. I may have chased I them away. Still, well, that's true. <laughs> and some of significant others. And I know a good friend of yours and his boyfriend were talking about it during lunch, and they said something I thought was interesting, that... They don't take Doctor Who necessarily as seriously and said it had something to do with kind of where it is in the TV schedule and and programming and when it comes on during the day. Yes, it appears to come on about seven o'clock or so on a Saturday night. And so I get the impression, you know, it's up against silly game shows. It would be like if we had a show that was up against Wheel of Fortune, it wouldn't necessarily be something you would see it of a similar ilk. And I think also having grown up with it, probably even more than we did, I suspect that during the dark times, as we refer to uh, the times when Doctor Who wasn't actually on the air again, people still saw a lot of reruns, BBC still ran it fairly regularly. And so when you grow up with it as a child, it's hard to make that transition in your mind that it's not just a children's show. And, of course, they're both younger than us a little bit. Yes. And so I thought with New Who, I mean, that's sort of, not saying that was their Doctor Who, but that was, you know, sort of relatable to them, that it was... Wasn't necessarily as deep in, as ingrained growing up. Probably was starting to end when they were born. <laughs> yes, although again, I suspect they saw the repeats. The repeats, yeah. And they, yeah, they said that they both loved Tennant, the Tenth Doctor, but never really got into Matt Smith as much. And that was sort of their opinions, but yeah. Yeah, and I suspect that's partly because Tennant was more of a known name than Matt Smith was. And so they knew almost from the beginning to an extent what they were getting. So I suspect that may have had something to do with it. Yeah, the quote I had for them was that Doctor Who was seen as light entertainment, uh, which I thought was interesting because another gentleman we talked to was someone we both met for the first time, was a boyfriend of a friend of yours. And he basically was sort of taking the opposite point of view that Doctor Who's for, for us now, for adults, and it's it's not a kid's show anymore, that it shouldn't be zany or anything like that and i thought that was sort of a i don't know if i agree with all that i think you, know, you can kind of be open to all demographics but he was sort of saying it should be taken a little bit more seriously and i thought that was sort of an interesting opinion to have yes and again i think it can very well come from the exact same place of having watched it as a young person and so have that loyalty so now it's mine I watched it as a child. It's still happening. It's mine. It's grown up with me, and therefore it's not for other children, if yeah. that makes sense. So I, th- I think 
potentially both of those viewpoints come from the same place. And this guy definitely seemed, you know, you never know how, how much is similar in culture, but it seemed very similar to American nerds, if you will. You know, in as much as that our generation, because he was probably around my age or our, you know, our age, that, you know, the stuff that we had growing up, we've now, you know, death gripped, kept with us. And now it's ours and it's not for kids anymore. You know, whether it's comic book movies or different nerd properties, like it's not for kids, which I don't know if I agree with that. I feel bad that it's not for kids anymore, but that it's now for adults. And he's kind of said some similar things that he doesn't necessarily thought that Capaldi had a great first series but uh he was said he was excited about the 13th doctor and what jody will be bringing into that role and he was interested to see how the large group of companions will work yes uh, yeah. he yeah. also had some strong opinions about star trek discovery but that's for another podcast <laughs> save it for later darling and when we were walking around we also made a point or at least i certainly made a point that we stopped by the police box that's still in london the only one remaining yeah and we had to take a special trip on the tube, all the way to Earl's Court, just to see this police box. So we got on the tube, traveled to Earl's Court, got off the tube, took pictures of the police box, had a pint, obviously, across the street, then got back on the tube and went on our merry way for the day. So that that was the most probably obscure trip that we took, wouldn't you say? Yes, and it'll be interesting. I think I have to dig out my last trip or my first trip uh, to London was 10 years ago. And so I'll have to see if I can find a picture of that, that first time. Because it did seem to me a little bit different, but who knows what a 10-decade or decade memory can do to your mind. Because it's it's sort of an, I assume it is a proper police box, but it didn't necessarily have the labeling uh, that we're familiar with. Uh, the TARDIS, at least, you know, for the front door. You know, it didn't have the, the white sign or anything like that, but just was the big blue box with police box and all that stuff, police call box and all that. And so... It was interesting because it had this sort of big blue light on top of it, and it almost looks like very exaggerated, but I assume that's on purpose. It wasn't just done to be like, this is a cartoony TARDIS, you know, it's sort of a regular police box. So if you're doing a trip to London, the Earl's Court police box is a must-do. I also took a picture of a, what I called the baby TARDIS. The skinny TARDIS, yes. if you will, yeah. yeah. It looks like a. It was basically like a police mailbox, or I, I forget what it was, but I'll have to, we'll, we'll, we'll put these photos in our show notes and be abused by our photos of yes, our vacation. but it was very narrow, and it was also sort of baby blue. Mm-hmm. I um, imagine it as, like I said, the, the baby TARDIS, or, you know, maybe the master's TARDIS, who knows. Ah, could be. Yes, I like that. I, I did like, because I don't often think about the fact that, of course, police boxes were a thing, which is a strange, very British idea anyway. I don't know if they appeared before phone booths so what exactly their purpose was and that's what it's interesting anyway yeah i assume and this is easily googleable so i'm sure i'll be proven wrong that you would this is when the police would either take a proper villain or you know a drunk person who knows and just lock them in the box and then you had a phone on the outside so then you could call headquarters or whatever and be oh, okay. pick up this guy or whatever yeah that's interesting i hadn't thought of it as as sort of a mobile prison kind of mm. thing yeah well, we, we'll google that after the episode which <laughs> is a little bit backwards but never mind we're going with it it's timey-wimey yes exactly <laughs> and we're jet lagged so you'll have to forgive us and of course i'm sitting here with my proper tea that i made from my kettle and put in my teapot so yes <laughs> yes philip got very used to anytime he would order tea 
in a restaurant, they would bring him a teapot. So he has come home and begun using his own teapot. Right. This is my Iraqi teapot. Mm. Of course, I am going to miss the cubes for sugar. Now, another sort of accidental stop, to be honest. There was one point in our trip where we were either hanging around a tube station or trying to get ourselves sorted in some way. And I was like, Google Maps. I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to put in Doctor Who and see if there's any points that come up that might be interesting. And the Who store popped up. And I'm like, well, I've never heard of that. Let's see. You know, it sort of seemed to be in the random part of London. And I was like, I don't know. We'll see what this is all about. I looked at the pictures. I'm like, well, you know, it looks like they got a few things for sale. Let's maybe, maybe it'll be legitimate. And we sort of happened to be at a time where we were waiting to check into a hotel. And you're like, well, let's just go ahead and do it. And, um, yeah, it was just a few tube stops away. And we had a couple of hours to, to spare while we were waiting for the room to get be ready for uh, us to check in. So, uh, yeah, we just hopped on the tube and went for it. And I have to say it was a pleasant surprise when we walked into the Who shop. Because it basically had everything you would ever want to buy from Doctor Who. Yes, including a fantastic Cyberman mug that I really wanted. Yes, I definitely had to watch myself so I did not go too crazy. Oh no, Philip spent all the money, he threw our bank card at the people and just shouted, take it, take it all. <laughs> that is the way that happened. But yeah, I, I mean, I can't recommend it enough. You know, it had, I don't know, everything you can think of, books and action figures and comics and DVDs and CDs and... It was interesting, I think they actually had like 10% non-Doctor Who stuff. They did have some... Yes, they did have a few random bits and pieces. My personal favorite was a Weeping Angel Cuddle Soft Toy, which takes away a lot of the terror. <laughs> Plush, don't think. But it was also very interesting, we were talking when we were checking out, uh, we were talking to one of the proprietors, and she was, I think she asked where we were from. Mm. And you said North Carolina. And what did she say? She said everybody from North Carolina was in London while we were over there. So that was very interesting. And then, of course, a customer next to us said, oh, you're from North Carolina. And then began to unbutton his jacket. <laughs> Which we didn't know it totally would mean. But well, yeah, it was a little disconcerting. But he had a Kansas shirt on. So uh, Fellow American. Fellow American. <laughs> and there were indeed. two when we went to another part, there was um, two ladies, mother and daughter, who were American as well, um, and so I, I think there were uh, some younger teenagers, I don't know if you remember them, uh, before we went in, that, I don't know if they were American or, or not, I don't think they were British, I think they may have been German or something, but it was a very mm -hmm. interesting experience to have all the Whovians come in on this sort of secret store, I, it's probably very popular for all I know, but. Yes, and Great Britain, we would just like to apologize for the American invasion to your shores, but let's be honest, it was a lot warmer in London than it was over here. So, And they, I talking to some of the proprietors, they said this was sort of the third, I believe, <laughs> regeneration, I don't know, yes, yeah. <laughs> of the store. And um, so not only did we look around at the ton of, of merchandise they had, and I had seen this on, when I Googled them, Apparently, they also have a museum you can visit. Now, didn't know what that would mean. Was it going to be some sort of like shabby look behind this glass case or whatever? But then when we asked to see the museum, they said, just queue up here. And then they handed you a key, darling. Yes, they handed me the key to the TARDIS. So to get into the museum, you had to go through the uh, TARDIS. 
And the one of the shop employees took our picture. He knew exactly what poses. He was like, right, now pretend to put your key in the door. Now open the door and step one foot in. Now both of you get in and poke your heads out. So he had this patter down to a fine point for uh, exactly what would make the best pictures. So that was quite nice. Now, one thing, if you do go, and please, if you're in London, go to the Who Shop that is on Barking Road in Upton Park, London. And we'll probably include a bit about them in the show notes. But one thing to, to, to note is that you can't take cell phone pics or mobile phone pics in the museum in the back. But if you have a regular camera, which I'm not sure what that is exactly, but if you have a regular camera, you're allowed to take pictures that way. I'm not sure. Yes, although there were some times when they were like no photographs and other times. So there were slightly conflicting bits of information, but it's still worth having a digital camera or something like that handy just in case. And the actual store part, there was a sign that sort of said with permission and I was like, Maybe all we need is permission. So we have, so like, as long as someone's in the photo, which again, I'm not sure why yeah, that's they the had, rule. They but. had another, a completely separate TARDIS and a full-size Dalek mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, their rule was as long as someone is in the picture. Perhaps they don't want you to use it for promotional, re- you know, yeah. if, if somebody's in the picture, then it's clearly just for personal reasons. Yeah, so I, I can understand that. But anyway, so the museum, again, didn't know what to expect. Oh, goodness. Yes. If the store wasn't big enough for you, the museum also is. Now, I guess I should clarify. I, ten years ago, in my last visit, when I was in Cardiff, Wales, I did go to the Doctor Who Experience. I'm trying to know if that's what it was called at the time. But anyway, now that was huge. Of, well, or at least a good size. A good size exhibit of Doctor Who memorabilia. So this isn't as big as that. However, this is a good size back room full of, of yeah. materials. Some some reproductions, but a lot original. Yes, and it wasn't a huge space, but it was chock-a-full of stuff. I mean, just everywhere. You had, to, In fact, they specifically told me that I needed to sort of hold my handbag close to me so I didn't swing into stuff. Yeah, your purse should was, be... <laughs> yeah, it was just everywhere. Well, I think, I mean, this is going to be a, a weird thing to fixate on, but they, they had the six doctors original costume, or at least one of them, maybe get several, but, or versions of it, mm. but considering we just watched, you know, the Twin Dilemma uh, yes, last episode, yeah. it's kind of funny to see in person the Six Doctors uniform, quote-unquote, in all its colorful glory. Yes, and lots of autographs, pictures of, you know, John Barrowman when he came to the store, those sorts of things, really amazing memorabilia. They had the, one of the Cybermen costumes, and this is sort of I don't know. I don't know how to describe Cybermen. Uh, the the most common looking Cybermen in classic Who, that costume. So I I thought that was sort of very cool to up close see where the zippers were and yes, how yeah. everything fit. But it was I mean they had every you know everything from all fifty years. You'd be walking and be like oh yes you know new Who stuff, classic Who materials and costumes, and you're like you know oh that's from that episode. And the staff there at the Who shop was of course very. You know, they're all Whovians, because you never know whether they just work there or whether they're all into it. But they... Yeah, and it seemed like there might, I think one guy who was there was a little bit, yeah, sorry, I just work here. But everybody else 
had an opinion and were lovely and really talkative and more than happy to, to share with us, which is fantastic. Because I asked for some guidance, not having ever listened to a big Finnish production audio production first. I was like, how many titles? I mean, there's thousands of titles probably out there, or at least hundreds. And so he gave me a good place to start. So, you know, in the future, when we ever do a big Finnish audio episode, that will be the one we'll listen to, because uh, he thought it was the best way, place to start. And just was very helpful there. And in fact, they were so helpful, I asked them if they wanted to be on the podcast, and they said they would be. They did, however, make one important disclaimer that I would like to add in. All of them who are talking, anybody who spoke to us there made it very clear that these were their opinions and not the opinion of the Doctor Who store itself. Yes. So what follows is two interviews with uh, two of the gentlemen that are there. And again, this is not the opinions of the Who shop, but just their personal opinions. And of course, this was inside the store in the museum. So uh, we apologize for any background noise. This was recorded on my iPhone, which is the first time I've used this app. Though I think it is interesting, sometimes you can hear Doctor Who effects in the background. So what follows are interviews with Owen, followed by Patrick Newport, and we hope you enjoy those interviews. Kind of what are you looking forward to with the new Doctor and, and Chris Chibnall in Series 11? Uh, well, we're just hoping that everything all goes well. Of course, th there's been sort of like mixed views, but uh, it seems that uh, it's taken really well. And uh, yeah, we just uh, hope all the best goes to uh, Chris Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker and all the companions that have been announced. So yeah. And then someone who knows Doctor Who a lot, I know working here in the shop, mm -hmm. this is, to me, the first time we've had a large group of, group of companions, maybe even since the fifth Doctor, almost, since we've had you know, three people in the TARDIS along with the Doctor. Yeah. How do you think that'll change things other than having the usual you know, young lady companion or even the couple maybe with Rory and all that? Um, I don't think anything will be any different um, because, you know, Doctor, same old person really and always travels with a companion whether they're uh, male, female, robot, uh, any sexual orientation. It will, you know, doesn't change at all really. <laughs> And just based a little on what the costume we've seen of the 13th Doctor, anything you're trying to read into what we're going to see from this new character, a bit more whimsical than 12 or a little bit more whatever? Um, I don't know. I mean, with the, the Doctor always dresses very eccentric. Mm -hmm. So whether it's uh, the 5th Doctor wearing a cricket outfit or um, the 7th Doctor wearing a whole bunch of question marks or someone who just goes a bit plain John Smith, like the you know, 9th Doctor Chris Freckleston. So, yeah... All right, I'm standing here in the Doctor Who Museum inside the Who store, and I'm with Patrick. Uh, yeah. um, so, Patrick, we've seen a lot of changes, of course, for the transitional time. We have Chris Chibnall taking over. We have a new Doctor, new companions. Yeah. What are you looking forward to with Series 11 in the autumn? Oh, I'm looking forward to it being on. It's so long, <laughs> so far away. <laughs> um, we've got, uh, what am I looking forward to most? There's so many things changing. We've got, because like you say, we've got a new Doctor, new companion, new TARDIS. I'm really looking forward to seeing how Jodie takes takes uh, takes on the role. To mm. be honest, that's what I'm most looking forward to, because obviously she's got quite a weight on her shoulders in terms of being a new Doctor, but also being the first female Doctor. So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing where her and Chris take 
that particular character. Mm. And, um, and also how they balance it with, because uh, they're having three companions for the new series, so how they balance it with that. And uh, it's the original dichotomy of the original series, of the first series, with two males, two females. And so I'm wondering how they're going to balance all those characters, and it's going to be very interesting. Awesome. Now, we've only seen a couple lines. Yes. And and, uh, and the costume, at least with the photo op. Um, mm-hmm. Any guesses about what this new character is going to be like, different from 12 and or however? Oh, that's that's a difficult one to answer. Mm-hmm. I'm I I much well. I think she, obviously she's already so different to Capaldi, mm-hmm. both in in, in stature, in, in in gender, and obviously in style from what we've seen from the photos. Mm-hmm. So I I really couldn't I really couldn't say I'm. I, I don't know. I suppose there'll be more, a lot more running. Capaldi's <laughs> doctor was more stoic and more in, into his monologues, so maybe there'll be a bit more, a bit more action from this doctor. I think. Mm-hmm. And then sort of uh, Bradley Walsh as a companion, and then the two younger actors mm-hmm. from from the soaps. I guess what it's sort of an older and a younger mix there. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I wonder, what, I, I, uh, I wonder what their relationship will be with with the doctor. With there being three of them, whether one will be a main companion or two of them will be a main companion. One of them will be a more of a recurring character, but I, yeah, I, I'm really, there's so many possibilities about what their relationship could be, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how that all plays out. And then I guess Sharon Jones was announced, I don't know, my guess is she might be a villain, but I don't know. Oh, um, sort of reoccurring mysterious character. Again, I, I, we could speculate forever, <laughs> but I just, I just don't know, I'm just really looking forward to seeing what they do with the series. And I, I've, I'm, I'm, obviously we're hearing rumours of uh, it being more of a serialised series rather than, um, Episodic, uh, uh, yeah, rather than, rather than episodic. So, mm-hmm. and that'll be really interesting. And we know uh, any fans of Broadchurch will know Chris Jibnall can do that kind of long-running story very, very well. And I'll be interested to see how he transposes that onto Doctor Who, if that's what they're doing. And we're back now. There was one interview we didn't record, and it ended up probably being our longest talk, and that was with. Uh, one of the other people who work at the Who Shop, again, his personal opinion, not those of the shop. But I think it began with either you or me making a comment about a Doctor, the Doctor Who movie poster they had that was signed by both Sylvester McCoy and... The Eighth Doctor? Really? Paul McGann. Paul McGann. Well done. Well done. Took I, me a second. I was like, the guy you just watched. Yes, and, the guy in Luther. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, we sort of got into an interesting discussion. He was sort of giving us the history of... The current Who shop, I think he said that Georgia Moffat, um, David Tennant's mm-hmm. now wife, yes. and Peter Davidson's always daughter. <laughs> I think let's was, always uh, let's also assume always wife. Well, let's, they, as as a married couple, let's never <laughs> refer to anyone as current wife <laughs> or anything like that. Well, I let's, let's make that a thing. Ago, so that's but, why still, I make that point. but still, <laughs> after being together for a while, yeah. And so I thought that was interesting. So that they definitely have had the guest and the stars come by there. Absolutely. But anyway, the, the gentleman, we started talking about the Ninth Doctor and Chris yes, Eccleston. and I, th- I think I probably made a, a throwaway comment um, because I'm always a little bit, meh, he never comes around, he never writes, he never calls, <laughs> you know, things like that. And he had a very, very vehement defense of Christopher Eccleston that I hadn't considered and quite appreciated. I'm still sad that he never writes or never calls, but he made some excellent points. Yes, um, you know, sort of our you know complaint um, as as fans, as you know fans often have, um, 
are about with Chris Eccleston that I was too bad he just did one season and, you know. And I then guess. just left and never came back and doesn't do any of the specials. Right, you know, like that. Was, was Doctor Who not good enough for him as an actor? And anyway, so what this gentleman was basically saying is like, hey, BBC was taking a risk with Doctor Who, and we know that. You know, after reviving it after so much time after... They had tried to revive it with the Eighth Doctor and the movie a little bit and hadn't had much success with that. So this was the second time in fairly recent history that they were trying to revive it. So it was definitely a risk. And so they had a one-year contract with Chris Eccleston, the BBC. Who was huge at the time as a performer. And so... You know, the, the gentleman was saying, like, you know, one-year contract, because, again, they didn't know if it'd be successful, so why offer him, you know, a three-year or a five-year? That they'd it, have to buy him out of later if it didn't work, yeah. And so he has his one year, and then him being, you know, a, a working actor starts making plans. And then when it starts to kick off a little bit, you know, these are during interviews, and then during sort of the press work of when Doctor Who starts... They're, the press is asking, well, how long, you know, what's going to happen in series two? And what are you looking forward to? And of course, he can't really say, I just signed a one year contract. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how did he make plans? So it put him in an awkward position. And then when it was eventually leaked uh, by however manner that, oh, Chris Eccleston's leaving at the end of the year, when I think they were only in their second or third episode of the new Doctor Who, might have been some, you know, fans were disappointed or maybe even angry. But for Chris, it was like, hey, I signed a one-year contract because that's all they gave me. And as an actor, I'm not just going to twiddle my thumbs. And Yes, I, I, as an actor, he had booked things because, of course, they filmed the whole series. And then, and of course, they're, very, they're short series. It's not the 22 or 23 episodes we get over here. So they had filmed the whole series before they even started he showing He already it. filmed his regeneration. And so he was already, you know taking gigs in other places because his contract was finished. He was free and clear to do that. And that was one thing that the proprietor continued to say. He did everything he was asked to do. He fulfilled all of his obligations. It was, it, he was quite vehement about this, um, which I thought was sweet and important because he's absolutely right. As a working actor, Christopher Eccleston needed to work. And so... He couldn't sit around and wait and see what the response is before making other other plans. Sure. I mean, it doesn't explain why he doesn't want to come back for the 50th anniversary, but what are you going to do? Well, <laughs> he's also, I mean, I think that the, the man that we spoke to talked about, you know, he was, he had other obligations. He was in America filming a movie yeah. or something Or at like least that. he was up for some movie parts. Yes. He didn't get it, I think, but he was up for, I can't remember what it was. He said it, but I forgot. I think yes. some villain part in some movie, but I can't remember what no, it was. No, I can't either. But he, he wasn't prepared to commit to it because he was in the running for this film part. And again, I, as a working I, actor, you can empathize with that. Yeah, and they had to uh, fall back with John Hurt. Yes, <laughs> yes, because they they said that Christopher Eccleston was supposed to be the war doctor, uh, but there are worse things to do than fall back on I'm John Hurt. Hurt. So we certainly want to thank all the people at the Who Shop both for selling us stuff and talking to us. Yeah, they, everybody was wonderful. They were so kind. But any final thoughts about encountering Doctor Who back at your? Uh... Homeland, darling. Yeah, it was really interesting because I don't think, like, I didn't know there was a TARDIS at Earl's Court. Uh, I didn't know that there was, 
there was so much that I learned just because I was looking for it sort of stuff. Um, and that was very interesting to me. And again, I think, to be honest, I learned the most talking to that guy about Christopher Eccleston. Because I've always been really mean about Christopher Eccleston, and now I feel a little bit bad. That's right. Let's hope, <laughs> let's hope Chris accepts our apology. Yes, yes. I would like to say formally, for when he listens to this episode, Mr. Eccleston, I apologize. Well, with that, we thought we would go into the TARDIS library and talk about, since we were Americans visiting the UK, why not talk about the first American companion on Doctor Who? So, we're looking at the introduction of the American companion, Perry, that's with an I, in Planet of Fire, which premiered on the 23rd of February, 1984, and of course, as always, around this time, they were four-episode serials. And of course, her full name is Perpigillium Brown. I always had to look that up. Which is very American. I think we'll all agree. <laughs> but anyway, so the synopsis for that episode, courtesy of TARDIS.Wiki.com, was The Master reestablishes psychic control of his robot slave, Chameleon. He wants to hijack the Doctor's TARDIS to reach the planet Sarn, where he seeks the healing power of Numismatun gas. I may have mumbled that one. To restore <laughs> himself. Once on Sarn, the Doctor's companion, Turlo, comes face to face with his destiny. Which I think is funny in the synopsis. They don't even mention, and by the way, the Doctor gets a new companion called Perry. What did you think of the Doctor getting an American I'm okay with it, obviously, because I wouldn't turn the job down if it came calling for me. I I liked this set of episodes much more than I've liked some of the ones that we've talked about in the past. And then as a setting, um, as where it fits into what we've seen now, ironically, or interestingly enough, this is a month before the Twin Dilemma that we watched previously. Because this is the penultimate episode for the Fifth Doctor. Ah, that's really interesting. So the Perry starts in this episode. Yeah, of course. Should be in the serial next, the Caves of Adrazani. I'm probably saying that wrong. Where the Fifth Doctor dies. And then the Twin Dilemma, which you saw. Yeah, which I didn't like at all. <laughs> so uh, I, I wasn't sure. I mean, Perry's okay. And I'm pretty sure it's not because she's American. But I swear I thought if this girl does not stop crying throughout this episode, or this group of episodes, I was going to tear my own hair out. It was a little bit, oh, I need to be rescued. Help, help. I think that Perry tends to play a stereotypical companion part. Nothing against Nicola Bryant, I believe that's her name, the actress, but it's very written as what we call almost think of the stereotype of the companion. But then when you look at the companions, I don't think it's actually true, but the stereotype is Oh no, I'm in trouble, I'm captured, I'm whatever, please help me. Exactly. And the, you know, the attractive, you know, of course there's a nice bikini shot about a third of the way through. Sort of the attractive female companion always in trouble, and that's Perry, uh, unfortunately, uh, to a T. But I don't think it's true if you look at all the companions, but she does sort of create the stereotype or at least reinforce it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I understand the idea or the purpose of the companion is to get into scrapes that the doctor has to help him out of as a general thing. But you can do it. I mean, you know, you think about the fact that Bill got turned into a Cyberman. 
that she was in a situation where she needed the doctor's help, but it's not set up as this, I'm helpless and the only way out of this is if you save me. Um, it becomes much more three-dimensional than that in more present-day current who, I think. Now, I thought it was interesting that her being on purpose un-American, of course it is a British actress, I was doing some research and apparently the John Nathan Turner, who was the showrunner at the time, if I'm saying that correctly, encouraged the actress to keep her American accent in interviews and oh, interesting. to sort of, I guess, create the mythos that she was American-American um, and not just playing the role, which I thought was interesting. Particularly because her American accent is not great. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about that. If you hadn't said she's the first American companion, I would not have thought she was American. I didn't find... They literally show her American passport. I'm, no. uh, yeah, yeah, the accent's not solid. Right. And um, the script writers didn't always write it American. Yes, yeah, and I think that that's oftentimes something that you run into, particularly if you're not 100% sure. Um, I, I have seen, obviously, living in Britain as long as I did, I've seen some American plays where people have to pretend to do American accents, and it is very often hit or miss. And sometimes they don't pronounce things correctly. It doesn't take a whole lot of... I mean, you have to know it, but get an American to come in and watch it. And they'll say, oh no, this isn't right. Uh, some website I was looking at would be like, Perry would say lift instead of elevator. Yes, yeah, those sorts of things that feel like they could have been simple fixes. Because I, th I think when you get a new companion in the Doctor Who, it always has to be like, what's the reason that the Doctor takes them on or says yes? So in this episode, we have Turlo uh, leaving, finally. And so the Doctor is quote-unquote alone, but he gets Perry. And so we, it's been established that Perry wants to travel. Apparently he's up for traveling with strange Englishmen. Uh, well, yeah, because she was all for it from the very beginning. I've met a group of guys, and we're going to Morocco, Morocco or something like that. Yeah, And then she didn't understand why her stepfather was like, mm, no. I'm going to strand you on this boat yeah. instead which is a good life lesson for all fathers and daughters. Well, you know, speaking of American accents, we did see hair while we were in London. <laughs> and, which, you know, they're, well, I don't want say it was a very American show, but it certainly came from America. Yeah, I think it, because, particularly because of its themes regarding the Vietnam War, it's pretty, I would say it's a pretty American show. But all the actors there were, did, I would think, pretty spot-on American accents. Yeah, those were pretty good, actually. They tended to go for southern accents, which I think is fairly common. People feel like southern accents are easiest to do, but they did pretty well. Well, if you would like to leave a rating or comment in an American or any other accent, uh, feel free to visit us on iTunes, our show page there, uh, because by leaving a comment or rating, you can help make sure other people find our show and other Whovians get to talk about what's happening in Doctor Who. So if you leave a positive comment or rating, we will definitely mention you on the show. And if you give a negative one, we'll just internally digest it and have it eat away at us. Or just judge you. That's right. That's right. That's the way it works on Doctor Who. Yes. So what are we going to talk about next week? Well, one of the things I purchased at the Who shop 
was Shada, the animated plus actual footage recreation of the unfinished Fourth Doctor adventure written by Douglas Adams, certainly of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame, and Dirk Gently, which I am enjoying on BBC America as well. Um, but of course, Douglas Adams, which I don't think I know this, was actually a script supervisor for Doctor Who for one season. So I thought that was interesting. But for those who may not know, Shada was written by Douglas Adams, never got finished. It was partially filmed and produced, but there was a strike. And so it was never finished episode. So what happened was, very recently, they, BBC and, and Doctor Who's gone back and animated all the things that were not filmed, brought back all the old actors, Tom Baker, you know, everyone else, and to do the voices. And so they've sort of done this mishmash recreation. And I bought an autographed copy, brag, brag. Um, at the Who Shop, so uh, we are going to be reviewing the now-completed uh, episode of Shada, and so if you uh, have not seen that or or hope to see that, join us next week so we can talk about the sort of new slash old Who. But until next week, darling, you're my favorite person to travel across the world with in all of time and space. That's very sweet. I'm going to bed now because I'm jet-lagged. This is BBC Television.